Jen Bosworth Ramirez. And I'm Gina Polici. We went to theater school together. We survived it, but we didn't quite understand it. 20 years later, we're digging deep, talking to our guests about their experiences and trying to make sense of it all. We survived theater school, and you will too. Are we famous yet? It's still at the breeders. I forgot to tell you that. So they send us, they send us videos every week. Uh, We pick her up on the 30th and um, you'll see her when you come, but she's she's pretty cute. So I have a dog. Everybody is, she's pretty cute. The thing is like, I, you know, I do have guilt about going through a breeder. I do have guilt, but that's just the truth. I, my rescue dog, Pee Wee Horton bit me in the face. Did you know about Pee Wee? <laughs> yeah. And, and, um, and bit my nephew and bit the mailman and was sick. And it was a horrible experience. Like, like I spent, and also, you know, whatever money's money, but I spent a thousand dollars training him. And it wasn't that it was that he had a tumor in his pancreas that was killing him and he was pissed off. So there you go. Yeah. Oh my <laughs> God. Your dog had cancer. I didn't realize the thing that, that he had cancer. You, the, the I know. God sends you all the cancer. I patients. know. My, my husband had cancer. My mom, the whole bit, the whole bit. How are the you? What's enchilada. going on on the East coast? Oh, uh, <laughs> how are you doing? You know what? It, so it's not a like in your twenties. It's a wild ride, right? It's like a roller coaster. It's twists and turns, and your stomach hurts, and you feel like exhilarated, and you feel t- okay. It's in middle age. It's like a um, like you're just riding one of those trolleys. Yes, that goes kind of slow, and there's or like in San Francisco, and there's still hills and sometimes it is very beautiful but a lot of times you're just right. slowly right. crawling towards your own death oh my <laughs> god Manacha, sacaroto. no is- i don't feel i don't feel like i'm crawling towards my own death it's just that having to deal with death in my family you know just of course makes me think about death and all its various iterations and and it, I, we don't know for certain because autopsy is not finalized but it does seem like she had a burgeoning medical condition that she did not that she got maybe diagnosed for but then didn't fill her prescriptions um you know and honestly like to me this is how the way one of the many ways in which codependency is a killer like sure. she took care of everybody else and she she there was somebody in her life that had had a stroke and she was taking care of that person and driving him around to make sure he got all of his medications and she then, didn't do her and own then she didn't do her own thing and and like it's it's that it's the stress of taking care of other people and not taking care of yourself and it's also this thing that happens to you know one of the hallmarks of a traumatized child is that they're like hyper independent yeah independent to the point that it's not healthy no that it's it's um super actually super harmful and super uh debilitating and isolating yes and for a time in your life especially when you're young it's such a prized tendency your parents love it about you and you know people are always marveling like it's two things like oh you're so mature right and you're so independent and those are things that we both my sister and i were told for me like i've made a very intentional choice to 
not to become less independent, but to ask for help, which is, you know, hard for me to do, or to, or I should say, it's, it's not that I don't know how to ask for help. It's this, I don't know how to ask for it directly. I right. know how, how to like, I know how to inspire other people's help, but not in a sure. way that, <laughs> that sure. it's just like me owning up to the fact that I need help sure. and then being like, oh, sure. I'd love to help you. It's like me pretending like I don't need help. Right. And, and then, you know, basically making it such that the other person has to help me. Right. Then I never have to say I need help. So, right. So I'm trying to take it as a lesson. I'm trying to take it as, you know, like, even if you're not uh, going 100 miles an hour on the freeway with a motorcycle and no helmet, even if you're not doing drugs, even if you're not whatever, like, you can still die from your inability to change. Ah, that's very, very, very deep. I, I hear that loud. That is, I believe, I mean, I believe that is what killed my father. I mean, he killed himself, but, but that's yeah. what the, the root thing was. He could not mm-hmm. change. And I, and it's very easy to like, it's, I get it. Like nobody change sucks in a lot of ways. And it's scary as shit to be told. Here's the thing. If you don't do this, you're probably going to die. But doing this means changing your whole life and your whole paradigm and your whole belief system. Well, who wants to do that? Who wants to do that? And also there's this thing, this trope of like, you've changed as it's always something negative instead of, yeah, well, of course, you should definitely always be changing. Well, also, In fact, yeah. Go ahead. No, no. I was going to say you have, we it's change or die. I mean, like that. And if you want me to die, like that's, it's interesting. Cause I have that no one in my life because it's a pandemic and I don't see many people are like, Oh, you don't eat Jack in the box anymore. And thank God I have a partner. That's like, not like that, but I can see where people would be like, Oh, come on, just come, come out to, you know, drink or come out to eat with us and you can do it. And I'm like, no, my heart will stop. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, another very close member of my family recently, you know, went to the doctor and got, um, you know, like a a very young person got a terrible report about cholesterol and triglycerides. And it's like, you know, you could be skinny and have high cholesterol. You could be fat and have low cholesterol. I mean, it's, it's just... So, so you, you have to, you have to take care of yourself. And and the thing is, it's really, um, gosh, it's really hard to, um, right. It's hard to say to, I, I was thinking like, okay, like you go to the doctor and they tell you, or you get any news, whether it's a psychiatrist or anyone saying, listen, this is a serious problem you have. Okay. And they, and they tell you that it's scary and shocking and, and, um, a bummer, a huge bummer. And like, also pissed off. Like, can you imagine she took care of everybody else's stuff her whole life? And now they're like, PS, you've done it all wrong. Now you have to take care of you. Like, fuck yeah, you. Exactly. Exactly, like, exactly. I did everything I was supposed to do. And now you're telling me I have to do one more thing and it's take care of myself. You go fuck yourself. So I get it. I, 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 that's how I might be. And I also can relate to being, um, my, I can see that my sister was more the independent one. I was just like under the radar and like, didn't say 
but my sister was really proactively independent. So I could, and she has, you know, she will tell you she has hard time asking for any kind of guidance or help in any way, like not even, you know, like subtle things and probably directions and shit like that. She won't even ask for. And it's like, Oh, why do we do this to ourselves? We do this to ourselves because like you said, it's rewarded as children, right? It's rewarded as children. And, and then there is also something about a woman like, Oh, she's so independent. You know, that's like a, a you know, a, a valued trait. And yeah. So, so then the other thing I'm just, meditating about is that you know the actually I'm writing a blog post about the stories we tell ourselves and how we craft the narrative of our life and and in my case what you do when there's just like a lot of missing information about the story Mm. and you know one of the essential questions I have is like what was the story she told her what was her story what was her own understanding of her life because Another thing that happens in death is that you just learn how people have completely different experiences of growing up in the same household and people have, and then when somebody dies, you learn all the different contexts in which that person lived and all the different ways that people knew them. Like this happened to me so often when my dad died, people would come up and tell me things about him that just didn't track with my experience. And for a long time, I was like, okay, well, that means you didn't really know him. And it took me a long time to realize no, no, no. They just knew him in the context that they knew him because it was very uh, self-centered of me to think like, oh no, if you, if you're not representing the same version of him I knew, then you didn't know him. It's really challenging. It's because it's like the same thing with my mom. So, you know, it's, and I, and, and I I can say this, she's gone and it's the truth. You know, she had an affair, right? And so I didn't know that. Oh, you didn't know that. Okay. So Mm -mm. I didn't either until, until my aunt told me that. And, um, and you know, and, and I just thought, I want to meet the guy who she had the affair with to know a part of my mom I never knew. Like, maybe he knew a really happy, awesome, um, fulfilled lady. I don't know. Like, I want that. It's very challenging because it would totally butt up against my version of my mother. But I'm also craving that. But there's no way to... So, yeah, it's... it's um, We know one version of our loved one or our friend or whoever and there's like a million versions of them yeah 100 percent. so like was this a long yeah so my okay so the 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 craziness was in like 2015 i was this is crazy i was at a bar a family reunion barbecue in chicago and my aunt and you know my mom died in 2011 so she had been dead at some time a couple years or whatever and one of her youngest sister said we were we were all in the backyard and having a cookout. And she like said, you know how your mom had that affair for eight years in front of everybody. (laughs) Oh my God. For eight years. And I pretended that I knew knew. because I was, uh, I just said, Oh yeah. And then I call and I was stunned. And I called my other aunt after the party and said, who was in town. And I said, did you know? And she goes, yeah, I thought we all thought you knew because you were so close to your mom at the end. I'm like, no, I had no idea. My dad knew apparently eight years. She would go on. It was all, all in California, in California. She had, cause she would go on a business trip to San Francisco and he was 
he worked with my mother. I don't know. No one can remember his name. No one can remember what he looked like. They didn't never met him. So they didn't know that, but they didn't even, my aunt who is my, was close, probably closest to my mom of her siblings. Um, she was telling me that she was trying to rack her brain to think and she couldn't remember. So she worked with him. It was a big company though. And so it, when it, it all took place in California and and so I don't know anything else. I don't know who to ask. I might ask, but uh, she has some work friends that I could ask, but that's like a weird thing. It's like, Hey, did you know my mom had an affair? And if you, so can I get in touch with the guy? He had a family apparently too. Oh, wow. So this, he worked for the educational testing company. Yes. Okay. ETS baby. Interesting. So, um, do you know what eight years it was yeah okay so it was like in the it was it was and this makes perfect sense it was um eight years and it was the most tumultuous time that my sister and my mother had together so because i i didn't i was so whatever checked out that i i didn't have any kind of relationship with her that was volatile i just sort of disappeared but my sister and my mom were going at it i remember she took us to san francisco once for the fourth of july when i was 12 so i was around 12 my sister was 13 they had a huge blowout in san francisco and i couldn't and I bet it was everyone projecting, my mom projecting onto her children, all kinds of, sh I remember she left us at the Esprit, remember Esprit? There was a huge outlet in San Francisco and she left us there. I know exactly there. the outlet you're talking about. Mm -hmm. She left us there all day once. And I think, <laughs> yeah, like we were 12 and 13 and she dropped us off in the morning and we were there. I remember there was a restaurant in it too. It was crazy. Or like in the outlet, but like she left us there from like 9am to 5pm. And I think there was some shenanigans going on and my sister barely remembers it and she's dead. So what can we do? <laughs> As a side note, the word shenanigans reminds me of, uh, on this Real Housewife show I watch. This mm -hmm. woman who's not a native English speaker, she's she's talking about something. She's like, you know, I got up to my shenandigas. And they're going, wait, what? <laughs> my shenandigas. Oh, shenanigans. I thought that was so funny. I think that's bro. I'm going to start saying that. <laughs> but the okay, so what's interesting to me about the whole uh, a spree thing and, and you hanging out there, I mean, everybody is just in the middle of their own experience. So, like, if that was me, I'd be like, Oh my god, I love this outlet. I'm so happy I get to spend so much time here. And my, my memory of it would be all about like how I was experiencing the store and your sister's memory might've been, you know, about her thing. And, but what, what's hilarious to me in some ways, even, even though a lot of times this led to drama for the kids, the balls that our parents' generation had on them, right? Like my mom told me that she remembers her father taking her to this lady's house. And then the kid, her kid would come out and they'd say, go play. And they'd be playing in the front yard for whatever however long it was that the two of them were getting up to their stuff and I, I just you know not that I would ever have an affair but if I did or I wanted to do anything secret like I would never take my kids because my kids notice everything like why are you doing that it, it, you can't I cannot hide one single right. thing from them right. how is it that the, I guess it's just because the culture was like that the kids were not involved in things yeah I think that's right and I think also you're uh I, 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 
a really aware and a, a present parent. Uh, I'm not saying that you're perfect, but I'm saying that you have a good relationship with your kids and that there don't seem to be a tremendous amount of secrets. So our family, there were a lot of secrets, right? And so yeah. when you're in a culture of secrets, you just hold the secret because your parents tell you to hold whatever secret it is. Even if you don't know you're holding the secret, like we were at the Esprit outlet and I remember thinking, it's interesting. I remember being really happy. Um, although I also remember thinking we were here a long time. <laughs> Like I was happy at first and then I was like, why are we still here? It's like seven hours later, we're still at the Spree Mall or outlet in San Francisco. What are we doing here? And I and my sister just I did one of those things and she said she kind of blocked it out, you know. So but they had a big blowout in a store in San Francisco. I just totally remember. But I'm sure also the two of you made I mean, just in the absence of information we just right. also make up our own stories and like right. if your child mind thinks like oh this is what happened i mean i could see you saying something to yourself and to each other like this is what happens in san francisco you know you're expected to just be at the store all right. day long and your right. parents leave. <laughs> like san francisco is all about you go to esprit for yes. eight hours a day and eat there there was like a restaurant in the esprit i don't <sighs> i know what you're talking i know i remember the esprit. i don't remember what was near it yeah but i have a feeling it was Maybe like in Daly City or yeah, something. Yeah, it like wasn't it was... in San Francisco proper. It was yeah. it was out uh, outlier. But I remember like Esprit was so expensive and fancy. So expensive. And I remember it being a huge deal that she left us there. Like she was so, and she must have given us some money. But like, I also, yeah, it's just such a bizarre thing. Like Esprit always will have that connotation to me. That company, by the way, should come back. That would be so popular right now, given how 80s fashion is so. I mean, that was some <laughs> shit. That was, was some it shit. It was. In fact, actually, I'm kind of thinking about a couple of sweatshirts. Yes. Esprit, and I'm thinking, yeah, that would look good right now. I could, I could. What's hilarious is that it's sweatshirts because you're obsessed with sweatshirts. I'm obsessed with sweatshirts. And I just realized the other day my daughter is obsessed with sweatshirts and my son and we'll wear a sweatshirt even when it's too warm because we just like feeling cozy that's fantastic <laughs> i mean you no, might overheat you might overheat but but yeah it's really well, it's be been raining like the entire summer here it's I, been cold and raining like more is, often than it's been anything else and it's burning hot there and there's no water we it's could like, wish we could ship you some of our water it's like so crazy here. over here it's crazy so um, crazy do you yeah. get to do you, do you have restrictions on like your showers and stuff we like don't that? but we try to i mean there will there should be but we try to not um so so i do this thing in california that i never would think about which is i don't um run the water while i brush my teeth i don't um they say to actually wash the dishes with the dishwasher because it uses less I thought mm -hmm. that was stupid, but then that's true. Then just a running. Lot less. Yes. So we just use the dishwasher. We don't take long showers. I never really did. Um, but, um, and then like, uh, sometimes in the water, I use leftover water. I don't know if it's any good, but leftover water from pasta and stuff to water my plants. It could oh, be. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it no, could be okay. I think that's okay. I really um, call that gray water. I grew up like that because I grew up in California. I never have taken a long shower. I, my showers, everybody makes fun of me. My showers, unless I'm washing my hair, yeah, are like five minutes. Like, 
seven minutes no like 90 seconds that's amazing i mean like you just have to scrub your parts a little bit i I don't get what it is to me it's like you get in you do all the soap you rinse off and you're done i don't know what people are doing my husband takes the longest my so does miles maybe maybe i don't know they're just like hanging out i don't know like well i don't know what they're doing in there like hey let me run this by you obsessed with this idea of leveling up and it sounds so like secret like the secret or like some power of now bullshit but here's what i found out oh my gosh i found out what someone else was charging to write monologues and i was like gina do tell do gina, tell gina 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 this i'm done i'm done i, I was like i'm gonna oh, check you are out deceased. I am a ghost. So I was talking to someone and she was like, how much do you charge for monologues? And I told her, I don't even want to say it out loud, but it was very low. And she goes, you need to be charging five times that. I charge five times what you charge to write one monologue. I said, what? I was deceased. And she said, and I have, and, and the reason, and it's one of these things where she said the reason she didn't say it in a mean way, but she said the reason you don't have enough clients or that you're not is because you're not valuing your work. So like, yeah. wh- what would you do if she's like, you like luxury hotels? I'm like, yeah, I like a luxury hotel. She's like, what would you do if the four seasons charged a hundred dollars a night? I'd say, oh, there's something wrong with that four seasons. She said, that's what's going on with your work. And I said, oh my God. I said, I I like stopped. We were walking and I stopped and I just, my mind was blown. And she said, you basically, you're, you're like in a, you have like a little cup and you're of water and there's the ocean is like behind you. You can't see it. And I, I, I told it clicked and I was like, okay, okay, no. All, All right. I, I can't be, um, my my um well anything's better than zero dollars mentality is not helping me which is why i end up working at like the ampm do you know what i mean (laughs) and why i like entertain working there it doesn't or like or -hmm. like when i worked at the donut shop like what what and the what and it's nothing against it's it's nothing against the donut shop it's my thinking that is kind of screwy in terms of uh my intention for working at the donut shop you know Mm -hmm. that's the Mm -hmm. problem area so are you going to raise your rates yeah so i i now she was like someone wants a monologue she told me and i was like gina this is, I'm the daughter of an immigrant. We do not charge this. It was, she's like $500 per monologue. And I said, $500? Oh my God. I thought you were going to say that you were charging $50 and she was saying you should charge $250, $500 a monologue. Gina, I would just be honest. I had been charging $85 a monologue and, and, and she said 500. She said no less than 500. She's like, what are you doing? You're 45. What are you doing? And I was like, oh, I said, I can't. I, my, I was shaking. I was so. And, and yesterday I had a similar experience with my mentor where I finally finished the script, 11 drafts in, 12 drafts in or something. It's done. It's ready. Like it, someone else will have notes. But I mean, like my work with my mentor on the script is done. And I was talking to her and she's like, I said, you know, I just really want to learn so so that Gina and I can write and change the industry and I can change the industry. And she said, never get in a room and say you want to learn. 
And I said, what? She goes, when you're meeting with people, you say what you bring to the table. This is not a learning experience. This is, you are mm-hmm. a bad, basically a badass bringing, bringing your expertise to the table. There's no learning and you can keep that to yourself. And I was like, what? Because people, people, I didn't know the way people interpret the way you say things in a way that maybe in Hollywood and look, I know that you can say, Hey, my vision is to like, really, I'm an emerging writer and I want to, um, I want to get in a writer's room and I want to meet people and, and write, but to say like, my vision is to learn how to do television in a writer's room. Okay. So we, now we have a project, you and me, we need to read the book by Mika Brzezinski, which I know she's maybe got problems. She's problematic in some way. She has a book called know your worth. Oh, I never heard of this. I'm writing it down. And people have referenced it to me tons of times and I've never read it, but this is what it's about. It's about women changing their mindset from being, you know, Oh, I'll just take a handout of whatever you want to give me. I'll just, I'm just, and you know, and we, we shouldn't, I don't know why it takes us so long to learn this message because you and I have talked even on this podcast about like reading things that other people submit for contests that win. And you're just going like, I would never even submit that because a woman is more likely to not submit something if, if it's not really, really good. Whereas a man is like, well, let's just give this a try. Let's just right. give this a try. Let's just give right. this a try. So, so I love this. I'm, Yes, the $500. In fact, now that we've been talking about it, it's probably in, increased in appreciation. You should probably be charging $600 for your well, mom. Because also you are such a good listener and observer of people that I'm sure that the people you're writing these monologues for, it's so perfect for them, right? The, what yes, they're, and they get yeah. agents. Like they use them yeah. and they get agents. So what in the... And sometimes I, I was embarrassed to tell her, but I'll just say it because I'm sure other people have this problem too. Sometimes if I am doubting myself when, with my writing and monologues, I have given them for free. To say, oh, hey... I'll just give you this for free. That way the bar is so low that they can't, I'm afraid of, as, as we know, we've talked on this podcast, like I'm afraid of negative or constructive feedback or like people having a problem with something I've written or who I am or whatever. So in, in, in uh, instead of saying, no, I stand by this. If you don't like it, that's fine. Like, um, but I'm still charging this. Mm-hmm. And then we can have a conversation afterwards about if you're disgruntled, I just would say, you know what, just have this monologue. She's like, you will never do that again. You will never. And I was like, okay. And I just, I, it hit me like a ton of bricks was last week. I was like, maybe it was the week before. I, 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 I couldn't believe what was going on. And my mind was blown, blown. And I was like, you charge what, what? Oh, that's amazing. That's amazing. You'll never go back. You'll never go back. I can't because now I know that the truth is the truth like I think that's what saved me like denial is not something that uh is not a skill I have it of course but it's not like my specialty so like same with the doctor shit like the doctor told me your heart is this you gotta lose this weight you gotta I can't pretend that the cardiologist didn't say that to me as much as I want to I, I it's in my head and it's like I heard it I saw it. I was present. So I cannot deny it. I cannot. Same with this. I can't. I can't go back. You're right. I can't pretend. 
And that's, and you shouldn't because you're, you're worth so much more. That is so interesting. I'm all about leveling up too, man. I'm all about like, and with the money thing, it's so psychological. Uh, Somebody that, somebody that I know is very close to me um, has a, his own business and he charges what he charges and he got told by somebody else you need to be charging twice that and he started to say if i try if i charge twice that then i'll lose my business and instead it's had the exact opposite effect people are clamoring he has a waiting list you know because especially you know people who have the money and actually, even me, oftentimes when I'm trying to choose between things, I, I will make the assumption that the thing that's more expensive is better. Yes. And I, I think also it's just, um, yes, I think that's human nature. I think that's human nature. I don't think that is like, I mean, I, I, the value, are we going, when am I going, and this is the same with my health. When am I going to value myself enough to do right by myself. You know, like when is the time? And if not at 45, about to be 46, when the hell am I going to do it? And I don't see any other time to do it but now. Like I I don't, it doesn't seem like, oh, next year I'll start knowing my worth. That seems like a terrible idea. No, no, the time is now. Yeah. Today on the podcast, we're talking with Dawn Vanessa Brown. Dawn is an actress who lives on the East Coast, and she told us all about her hilarious adventures and not so hilarious adventures and beautiful and messy and hard times um, being in, at Syracuse University and then New York City and moving to an island. Um, and she has just a great way of telling stories. So please enjoy our conversation with Dawn Vanessa Brown. Well, as my, as my husband and my dad would say, God bless you on your journey, you know, and goodbye and good luck. Yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. Anyway, congratulations, Dawn. You survived theater school. Uh, oh, I did. I did. <laughs> you survived it. Yay. And you went to Syracuse, right? I did. Are you a New York? Are you, have you, are you from New York? No, I'm from New Jersey. Okay. But like close, close. Yeah. Yeah. So did, what's, did you apply to a bunch of different schools? No, I mean, honestly, that was, um, back in the day when three was tops in terms of schools you applied to. Mm -hmm. And I applied to Yale, um, blindly. And, that was about the time when they were the Ivy League were, were doing they were doing things. First off, I, I mistakenly applied to Yale when I really should have applied, realized it was Yale drama I wanted. But oh. I just but I was it was a small oh. it's a Catholic, okay. small Catholic school. You know, parents back in the day, she didn't you didn't really get any help. And even though my dad was a teacher, I got no help. So I was like, I'm going to apply to Yale. And I almost got in. But they had back in the day, they had a quota. And they were like, listen, because I applied early decision. They were like, we can't take you because we have enough of you. But if you want to go to Princeton, <laughs> we can make you, we can, we can possibly see if you could go there. And I was like, no. And then I applied to NYU and never, it literally never heard back from them. What? 
didn't mm. applied, never got my application, called again, <laughs> said, can I have an application? Sent me another <laughs> application, applied, nothing. And, and, and money, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't like today, like Olivia applied to, I don't know, 10 colleges. Money was an object. So I was like, okay. And then I was like, and I did my own research and I thought, ah, fuck. All right, Syracuse, it looks okay. And But did you have to audition I did. at Syracuse? I did. Okay. I auditioned um, in the city at Lubin House. What's okay. that? Um, it's that a Syracuse University townhouse on the uh, Upper East. Oh, Oh, I see. Like a satellite yeah. location? Yeah. If you okay. were for alumni, they had rooms you could stay in if you were hanging out for the weekend. Oh. And so one of the drama professors was there over the weekend and uh, I auditioned. How did, uh, do you remember your audition? I do. What did you do? Oh my God. <laughs> I was so- I, it's listen it's not going to be any worse or weirder than what we've heard i'm telling you right now okay, i played I, a, I was in 18 and played a 49 year old <laughs> woman who was raped and then tortured and killed the rapist at at, at 17 16 all right but you but that, that was 17 you did that stuff i could do it right right what um, did you do i did from a lily tomlin show something called sister boogie woman okay is it from uh, Man in the Marigolds or? I have no, no, I don't think it, we did a cabaret at school and I did Sister Boogie Woman. She was supposed to be a preacher and it was one of a Lily Tomlin stand-up acts and I did oh. it. I knew that is nothing. cool. Was it, was it fun? It was fun. It was fun. But with the other kid who auditioned next to me, I never forget this. Oh, my God. His name was Freddie. Freddie. And he was so serious. Like, he'd already, he'd done, I hadn't done stock. I hadn't done anything. All I had done was, like, Catholic school plays, Catholic high school plays. And he was so serious. And, 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 and he was like, you know, I, if you don't mind, I just need a, a, a minute to prepare. And I was like, okay. I didn't. They, yeah. There's those people that are like, I need to. And I'm I was zone. like, I want to talk to you and see where you're from. And they're like, lady back off. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. So um, I, I went in really, really blind. And then when I got there, it was it was a huge shock. In yeah. what way? Um, Syracuse, and I don't know if they still do it, but they their program is completely separate from the university. And mm-hmm. Syracuse is a huge rah rah school. And right. it's yeah. it's I mean at the time it was they called it you know the Jewish Princess School, the Long Island School. And a rah-rah school. It had, it had something for everybody. And as an only child from a really closed Catholic school, I couldn't wait. Yeah. But the culture shock was once I got there, we took classes at Syracuse Stage across the street from a psychiatric center down on East Genesee Street. And we had to take what you took was called Common Core. And you, it was like a nine to five job, nine to five freshman year down at the theater. Each part of the theater was, was where you did your classes. 
whether it was dance, whether it was intro to acting, theater history, it was, it literally costuming, it literally stretched the whole day. And only by about two or three o'clock did you actually get up on campus. And that was wonderful and awful at the same time. Because um, you didn't get to blend with the other you, students. We told, oh my God. And we stuck out like sore thumbs. I worked very hard to stay on the edge, as it were. Meaning uh, most of my friends, with the exception of two, well, the exception of Patsy's sister, sister-in-law. Oh, you, I never heard that Oh, you story. didn't know that? Oh, yeah. I went, to, I, went to, I went to Syracuse with Patsy's sister-in-law. Interesting. And I missed okay. her by like two or three days because her brother and his wife came to visit. And I oh, okay. never knew. Um, but you had a place when you went up there, you were, we were like freaks out of water. Even mm. the music department, uh, uh, the school was under the umbrella of VPA, Visual and Performing Arts. And they had a beautiful, beautiful big Victorian castle up on the hill where all the music students took classes and anything to do with music. But the drama kids were a 15 minute walk off campus across from crazy people. Yeah. And they were walking around. And oh, so, wow. Yeah. Well, I mean, <laughs> you know, character study. <laughs> I was going to say also people probably couldn't tell the difference between the theater students and maybe the, the people who are clients over there. Cause were, were you mean like that you stuck out because of the, the dress and the smoking cigarettes and that kind of a situation? We stuck out because, Oh my God. Okay. So there were two majors that, that you could take. You, 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 you took, there was music theater. They had a music theater major and they had an acting major and I was an acting major, but you took classes with the music theater kids. And the things I learned, I listened to kids vomit um, at lunchtime, the girls, because the directors of the music theater program, they fat shamed you. I mean, I, you know, I got fat shamed and I was in the acting program and I was like, fuck you. There's nothing wrong with me. And you started to, I mean, we, we walked on campus and, and it was punk was big and we are wearing leg warmers. (laughs) We're wearing like tights and leg warmers with sneakers. And we just think we're so fucking unique. Yeah. You you, you were, you You were, and, 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 and we didn't know, I mean, I made it my business to know what a keg party was, but the other girls, they just, they didn't know what to do. They didn't know how to hang. They didn't even smoke pot. I mean, it was real. They were missing out. They were missing out and they knew they were missing out, but they were so, that school, I don't know what it's like now. That school was so driven and so Mm. competitive that by sophomore year, I was one of only maybe five people that actually lived on campus. Everybody went off campus, got an apartment to be close to the theater. Wow. And I was, and that was that for a lot of girls, that was their college experience. That was not, I was determined that wasn't going to happen. Well, one thing that strikes me about the way in which the school was such situated was it, then they really did treat it like a conservatory. Yes, they did. Yeah, yeah. So that, I mean, because that's the experience that we had too. Yeah. 
uh, not being really a part of our university, unless unless you lived in the dorms and mixed it up that way. But it, yeah, and I think DePaul, the theater school at DePaul, Indiana, no Chicago, Chicago, okay, yeah. So there was, and I think, you know, and you're, you're, what you're describing long hours, I think that has something to do with it. They want, in a way, they probably don't want the kids to have so much of a college experience because they don't want you to do anything that gets your focus off of, you know, the training. It's true, but, you, you know, you're 18. I was 17. Me too. I it was 17. Your, your hormones are raging. And straight guys were few and far between. And there were a lot, I don't know if I can say, there were a lot of just like horny girls. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Who, who, and a lot of young boys, they would not be confused in today's society. They could, I mean, cause you can be anything. They could be, I can see now that some of the boys that we were like, what's up with them? They were probably non-binary. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And they and 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 they floated in and out, but there weren't enough what straight cisgender boys to to keep the drama department happy. And it was also <laughs> um, it was also Lily White. Yeah, that's they what had I was ask. me. <laughs> I sense a pattern. Um, another guy, <laughs> Gary Brown, and two other girls from the city who left after. Um, sophomore year. So it was just me and Gary. Out of how many? How many did you did you end up graduating with? Do you think? Oh, fifty. Oh, that's big. Maybe I'm saying fifty. But that, you know I mean, what? So- no. Oh. No. <laughs> Thirty-five. Yeah, but still, yeah. only two people of color. That's insane. Yeah. Yeah. It's consistent though with it, with, it, with it's consistent with the, with the times and with the schools kind yeah. of situation with the con- theater program. Mhm. Wow. So what about shows? Um did you do a show every term? Well, they had a rule that um freshmen could not audition. They were strictly come and watch and learn. And I loved that. It took so much pressure off. Um, And then come sophomore year, you could audition. So I did sophomore year, I did Getting Out by Marsha. It's not Marsha Mason. (laughs) Marsha Norman. Marsha Norman. Norman. Um, Junior year, um, I got cast in, because the the perk of being... um, next to Syracuse stage or taking classes at Syracuse stage was that when they needed extras, they would call upon the students. So I got cast in, um, Merchant of Venice, um, Merchant of Venice. And then, um, what did I do junior year? And I did something else, which, which, which really escapes me. Senior year was the big year. Um, and it really, I, 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 as scarred as I am from Syracuse, um, I got my equity card right out of college. Wow. They had an agreement with equity that their senior year, they would do um, a bus and truck uh, touring thing 
uh, a children's show and they would cast it from the graduating seniors who all had to audition. And now when I think about it, I said 35, it's probably more like 20. I realized there weren't a lot of us. It seemed huge at the time. Um, and I got cast and um, I got my card that way. That's, I think that's really smart. Oh, I wouldn't, I don't think I would have ever been able to have gotten it if it hadn't been that way. I was going to say, uh, doing a traveling children's show is about the best training you can get right out of college because you have all of the energy, yeah. you know, that is required for it. Um, and you really learn about audiences, audiences who are psyched to see you, audiences who are not psyched to see you, pe people who feel really confident and comfortable just yelling things out <laughs> while you're performing. You know, it's it's a real trial by fire situation. Yeah. And, and did you did you all have to put up the set and do that all that Absolutely. work? Absolutely. And right. we all and that rode is... with the set in the back of the van. Yeah, Love I it. did that too. And it would have been nice too. if we all got along. That would have made it a lot easier. <laughs> But we didn't. There was How long did you do it for? And uh, but we made it through. How long did you do it for? Um, month and a half. Okay. So is the curriculum there the same at other places? Just you do a voice and speech component, an acting component, Absolutely. a movement. Mary Earl. Mary Earl, bless her heart. She was Southern, and she was the voice teacher. And she was, I mean, I was her pet because I could, I can do, I could do dialects, but she was really passive aggressive mean. <laughs> and then we had Dr. Krempel, who was theater history and they called him Krempy. Um, and our acting teachers were, oh, they were really odd. Mm. That's they exciting. were really odd and, and really, and the men were really damaged. Oh, uh, yeah. That was the downside of everybody being around together is that you got to see, and we were, I, I, I think we were way too young to see the dysfunction. Um, there was Victor who was, um, who was, it, it is amazing. He was apparently a heavy man and he lost a lot of weight. So he decided to transfer his body issues onto the freshman class. Of course. Of course. And, and, and just the pressure, the pressure. And, and then he picked freshman girls who he liked to educate further. Oh, no. Oh, oh yeah. Wow. Mm. I mean, it's not. And it was not like a open secret kind of a yep. situation. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then um, the man who auditioned me ended up leaving. He was so sweet. Um, I'm sure he's not here now. Carlton Collier and his backstory. I mean, it, we, sh I shouldn't know this. Okay. I shouldn't know that he met this woman, um, on, uh, an actress or something. And she got, they got married, she got pregnant and she left him with the baby. So oh. at the time, this was a middle-aged man trying to raise a son. Wow. And I mean, he even came to one of our cast parties mm -hmm. and yeah, it was, it was, it was just like, Oh God. And everybody was like, Carl's in the bathroom getting high. <laughs> we were oh, like, we got to get rid of him.
Oh. oh god oh god it's all too real it's all too true <laughs> and it also sounds so similar to our experience like your really? school sounds yes so we went to a conservatory you went to a conservatory basically this is what you went to like oh. and, and i mean i i don't i'm just saying like they're so similar like the exact same things went on and we probably went to school around the same time and that time was just a hotbed for inappropriate like totally um now would go to jail kind of situation. Yes. yes. Mm-hmm. Now would go to jail. Mm-hmm. One thing that comes up a lot on here when we have guests who are people of color is, is just, well, so, so we've had the range of ages, including somebody who's just, just now graduated from theater school. Mm-hmm. Um, and then people who are more our age. Um, but so the the just graduated person had a very different experience than the people who are our age. But um, a lot of people talk about these micro and not so micro aggressions coming from the other students, coming from the teachers. And one of the main ones is just the material, the material always being plays written by white people with white characters. Was it like that at Syracuse? It was. To start, I think you have to understand um, the relationship white people have with a person, a black person who looks like me. Now, granted, my hair, I showed you the picture. My hair was cut really short. That was my protest. I don't know why. Um, And they don't know what to do with you. But I, I understood going in because I grew up, my Catholic school had three black people in it. I grew up in second grade. Somebody told me, you know, you need to go back to Africa. And I thought, oh, I'm going to get you suspended. You know, I had, I, I knew all of that and I knew the inner workings of white people. And I happened to to, to be quite honest, I, I went in and I did not expect them to, I mean, that, that wasn't even a thought that they would have people of color writing plays. That wasn't, I didn't even think of that. And I stood out because I got cast every year because I was good. But I do remember when they did getting out, three guys who were my, they were friends, but they weren't friends. Um, and Frenemies? And, and they, Hmm? Frenemies? Frenemies? Yes. Kind of. But we didn't hang out. They were they were out at a time when it was a big deal to be out and they were they were kind of sarcastic and they were mean and they were like, um, oh hey, congratulations. I said you know, and something. I said, okay, thank you. And they said, Well, we didn't audition because we don't do ghetto theater. Oh, that's just a straight up aggression. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I said, it's not ghetto theater, it's poor people doing that. And they were like, well, we didn't, and and they didn't have the, they didn't have the intellectual bandwidth to, to have a discussion about this. And um, I was always someone that I, I really believed they knew I was black, but I wasn't too black. And I liked doing classical theater. I mean, we did, um, there was Merchant of Venice. There were other things. I liked doing a lot of stuff. And I did not 
I was outspoken, but I was not outspoken until about my um, senior year about race. So I expected what I got. I was not expecting anything inclusive. Um, they did have a traveling show uh, for color girls. Um, and two, the other two girls that I told you, um, and, and black women, which was the three of us, were encouraged to audition. And that they also had an agreement that that show would go equity. And those people would get their cards. So I obviously was not cast in that. Um, but the other two girls were. They got their cards and never came back. Yeah. I mean, and good for it, them in a way, right? It, it, you know, I it was what I was used to. It was what I was used to. Um, any type of my true friends... Um, well, one was a social work major and the other one, she was an acting major, but I knew she wasn't going to stick it through because she had so many other um, ideas. And we lived we lived on campus and, and I lived my life. You know, I was around brown people and white people. So when I came down there, I thought, oh, it's OK. I, I was used to it. I grew up in an all white neighborhood where we were the only black family on the block. I knew the drill. And that's sad to say, but I knew I knew the drill. I did not expect anything more. And has theater have your theater experiences since then all been very similar? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Cuz I know I, that's I, the situation you're in right now. <laughs> <laughs> I I I think theater theater is is, is just so hypocritical. Um yes. it is not inclusive. Um, anytime any, any person of color uh, wanted to, to act, they had to form their own, uh, workshops. I remember mm -hmm. there was a place called Frank Silvera's workshop. There was, um, God, and this is ancient. And when I knew them, they were, they were, they were, they were closing. It was Negro Ensemble Company and they were huge back in the day. And there was a, a another place, but you know, one theater company for all the people of color in the city mm -hmm. is not going to hit it. Um, and, and I understood that. And I, I mean, my um, experiences in the city were abysmal. Hmm. It was hard. I mean, it was horrible and I had to leave and I did leave. Wow. Did you, did you um, have a showcase like we did where agents and all that stuff at the end of your school? No. Oh. Just, just the um, children's show and the equity card. Yeah, which is great. I mean, which, is, yeah. which is great. But there was no, no. Syracuse was too far for them to have. But did did the school do anything in terms of teaching you about the? Because one of our evergreen complaints is that the school did almost nothing to teach us about like the business. How are you going to make a living? They tried. We had a how to audition class. <laughs> Well, if, if you knew the teacher, you could ace that, you know, mm -hmm. you, you would, how can you go in cold when you know that person? Cause you're stuck with them all the time. You've had dinner at their house, you know, yet her husband is the dramaturg for Syracuse stage. Stop. Um, we also had another woman who was um, an equity stage manager come and speak about living in New York. And that was possibly the best 
stuff I got because oh, but but not for the, the the reason that you may be thinking. She started talking about neighborhoods where you could live in, and I, of course, was the only black person there. And I remember she said, "And you should check out Little Italy or Chinatown." And then she looked at me. Uh, and 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 the look on her face was like, "Not you, not you." And mm-hmm. I knew. I was like, and 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 that at that point, uh, I mean, my city experience is, is a whole other podcast. I mean, the 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 the, the housing bigotry was oh god, it was rampant, horrible, horrible. And if, if you if you feel comfortable, I mean, I'd love to hear a little bit about it. I you start out, I you know, ads and stuff like that, and and there were shares back in the day. It was. You can share that. I mean, I guess there still are. I don't know. And this is how I sound. So you form a preconceived notion. And back in the day when I showed up at the door, I think aside from the one guy that tried to have sex with me when I was trying to, I was like, you know what? I got to go. Oh, even no. then, even then being, being like 21, I was like, so are you still renting the room? <laughs> you were like all about the business room room. can i still get the room i thought i could put a million locks on the door um i i by the third time when i showed up and this happened to me at syracuse too um with my first roommate i showed up and they went you're dawn and i was like yeah and they were like oh Good. Come. Uh, okay. Uh, come on in. And they would spend a quality five minutes with me and then go, you know what? I'm sorry. We just, we got an offer and we just read. And after that, I thought, okay. And I had a friend uh, from, from home who was, who was black. She come out of Yale and she was much darker than me. And because she was um, coming out of Yale with inve- and with investment banking, an investment banking degree, it took her twice as long as a white as a white girl to get the apartment. But she got the apartment in Manhattan because she had Yale and she ended up going to Harvard. She had that behind her, and that's what it took to get a shit walk up. Um, it was the, the discrimination was so bad. I ended up, oh God, taking a leap of faith and thought, all right, I'm going to move to Harlem. I don't know. I think it's going to be okay. It, it was horrible, but I lived there for five years. I mean, I had crack dealers across the street. I had half the block abandoned. I had a little old lady down the stairs named Miss Green, may she rest in peace, who used to look out for me when I came home and, and, and invite me in for a beer. She'd worked all her life as a domestic. She didn't have a stitch of hair. She wore a wig and she was a domestic. And she would sit and I would tell her I was an actress and she would tell me stories about Lauren Bacall. Wow. And that she wasn't as nice. She was not, not, not the nicest lady. 
she, she does not seem nice. I don't think she was bitching. <laughs> and it's and she said it's a wonder she's still alive the way she smoked. It was like a chimney in there. But um, yes, because the spiteful people live the longest. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so did your parents, I mean, did they worry about you uh, going to Syracuse and then living in the city? Did they have concerns about, I mean, you, you were expecting it, I guess, but did they? Well, my father, um, he was an odd dude. He was a high school history teacher and a really popular one. And, but he also, his, un, his love was, he fancied himself an artist. He was going to be a jazz musician or this and that. And he and my parent, my mom divorced early and he was so pissed off that he would only have sporadic um, uh, visits with me. In between, like, he loved Scandinavia. I, uh, very strange parenting. And he did not, he honestly did not care. He did not care. Because he had to pay college and child support, and we had to go to court. So he could he could give a fuck. My mother, as far as Syracuse was concerned, she didn't have a problem. Um, she apparently told me much later um, cause I also lived in another place on the, uh, right off of West end Avenue and 86th street. It's, it's a nice little building now, but at the time it was an SRO mm-hmm. and they were trying to change them over. They had homeless people in them, but they were trying to get college students in and it was 50, 50. And I lived oh there right before God. Harlem, but I didn't live with any college. We all had, we all shared a bathroom, but we all had like little studios <sighs> I live next door to a man who I thought was dead, but then the other people in our pod came to me one morning desperate saying, are, do you realize what he's doing? I'm like, no, no, no. What's he doing? The, the man was crazy. He was, he was going to the bathroom in bags. Oh no. Paper bags. Oh. And, 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 and throwing them in like garbage cans. Mm-hmm. So I, you know, and, and it was, it was so sad. That was, that was the best Manhattan had to offer me. That's why I was like, let me see Harlem. So at least yeah, I had yeah. a full apartment, but I was scared every minute of the day. Yeah. Did you get like, was there, did you experience any crime yourself? Yes. Hmm. Um, I didn't, it, it didn't happen. I was so naive. Somebody had told me you need to have bars on the windows. I was like, fine. I put bars on the windows. I didn't know I needed to get a lock for them. Oh, right. Okay. Right. Yeah. Cause they, they accordion. Right. So you could get out and cause it, I was right on a fire escape. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of, and the fire escape window that locked, that didn't lock. So I assumed I was okay. It never occurred to me I needed to get a lock. So I'm sleeping one night and it's a studio and I, I, I know I saw this. Stop lying, Dawn. You can't lie to yourself. I saw the window being opened, the grate being opened and a foot about to come through. I woke up, screamed, threw stuff at the window and they left. Oh and, my um, oh my God, 
I thought, oh, okay. And then I talked to somebody and they were like, you need a lock. And I thought, oh my God, why didn't I? No. And it, it turned out that then, then when I, I called the police and, and that was, that was wonderful. I called the police and they came and, and I wouldn't say they took their time. But they weren't there right away. But when they came and the operator wanted to stay on the phone with me because I called 911. Um, but the cops came and they were like, we didn't expect anybody like you to be here. And I was like, OK. I mean, I, I, I had no illusions about the cops um, and there was yeah. absolutely nothing they could do. I bought a, a, a padlock. At that point, then I learned that my next door neighbor's daughter was a crack addict. And it was probably one of her friends that was climbing in. Oh, I thought you were going to say, and then we learned, you know, that there was a rapist looking for crimes of opportunity. No, um, nothing like that. Nothing like that, because uh, this may sound crazy as 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 dangerous as that part of Harlem was, they knew everybody. I stuck out like a sore thumb. And, and I don't know if you can remember, no, you wouldn't, you wouldn't, you wouldn't know. The, the city in those days, it was a whole, when, when, when crack was really, really, really big, like late eighties, early nineties, um, there were lots of high school kids, um, young, young boys and girls driving around in Jeeps with stereos in the back. And they were the runners for the big dealers. And my street was just, and they knew people. They just, you know, so there was, I, I never really had a fear of rape. Um, mugged? Sure. By some crazy crackhead? Yes. Um, and that's enough to make you feel uh, yeah, unsafe. That's that's enough. This whole time, are you acting? Are you trying to act? I am how trying is... to act. I am oh, trying man. to act. But what I also learned was I didn't know how to support myself. And I had to draw. So I came out of school after the children's show. Um, I worked at I thought I was going to work at home for a year. Um and that didn't work. I was going to work. I, I had a job at the library in Princeton, which is very near my house. And um, that didn't work out. It didn't work out with my mom. She was just my rules. So um, I came to the city with like $500 in my pocket and I had found a place um, with an older woman who ended up, I, I ended up leaving um I ended up leaving in six months and going to the SRO and <laughs> that, you know, things are bad when, when you, you have to live in an SRO. <laughs> By the way, for people who don't know that single room occupancy, yes. it's like, a, it's like a, it's like a motel, like a, you know, yeah. it's, like, yeah. it's like a motel mixed with a halfway house kind of a feel. Yeah. yeah. May they rest in peace. Um, so I, and then I was doing, I was just obviously strictly doing backstage and that was around the time before everything changed, where if the audition started at nine o'clock, you had to get in line at seven to sign up and then go to your support job 
and take that lunch hour, hope they weren't running late. I mean, it was a fuck up and I fucked up. I thought I, it took me a long time to learn. I got to be there at seven. I thought there's no way. There's no way I'm not signing up at seven. And then what am I going to do? I'm going to go all the way back up to Harlem and then come all the way back down to Midtown for my temp job. Cause that's what I was doing. I was temping at offices around. Um, and it, it just didn't work. So I dropped out and I worked at an investment, a small investment firm for a year and I took uh, computer classes, word, pro- word processing, as it was back in the day. I took mm-hmm. all of those classes, had some money in the bank, still living in Harlem, but I was still doing, I was just doing a nine to five. I finally, after a year and a half, I was like, okay, I moved to temp agencies and started stuff and I got nothing, nothing. I didn't work for years and years and years. Um, And then uh, I called in a favor after a while. I called in a favor. um, And then I moved to Brooklyn. And that turned into be a nightmare. Oh, my God. It was a nightmare. Oh, Dawn. Too many nightmares. I didn't know. This is, it's almost like Candide. Like you're walking, an innocent walking. Well, I moved to, uh, first off, I missed the whole um, Park Slope. Revive. Right, I missed right. it. I missed mm-hmm. it. Somebody, somebody offered. He was like, and I, I mean, he had a crush on me. He wanted to get in my pants, but I, you know, it was an apartment. Um, and he was like, you should move to Park Slope. And then, and he had an in. And I thought, I can't do it because I heard him make an anti-Semitic slur because we had a we had a support job, and he made the most horrific slur. And I thought, I can't live with you. I, you know, and, and I could, I didn't want to tell it. I, I just said, that's it. So I, I just ended things with him. I moved to Crown Heights. Okay. I had no idea. Literally, literally on the borderline with the Caribbean neighborhood and the Hasidim. Literally. I took a walk like in that direction for two blocks and there were fur hats and beautiful, beautiful um, homes but just men in, in, in a few men walking around in four hats. I lived in the Caribbean side and then I had to run from that place because I didn't realize that because I had never dealt with Caribbean people. This is not good. This color uh-huh, is right. not good. Right. And somebody told me as we were, I was walking down the street. I didn't stay long. I had to, I had to leave in the cover of night and break the lease. Um, somebody told me, you know, they're talking about you on this block, but they were using Patois because somebody was selling drugs and somebody was letting somebody in. And I was being like Susie, good American. And I called the cops and they were like, you can't, you can't call the cops. And then another story, I'm at the mailbox, a woman accosts me and she said, you're still here. And she was a sweet woman. She said, get out, get out now. This place is full of drugs. They, 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 the real estate agent sold you a bill of goods and she was leaving and she was fearful. She said, they've already threatened me and my kid. And she left. I left within a month. Wow. My God. This is And Holy. I mean, acting was, I was yeah. still trying. Yeah, but, yeah. but, and then I finally moved 
to the meatpacking district. And that was great. <laughs> that was just transvestites. Yes. Some of whom lived in my building. <laughs> finally, we get to it's not an, it's not a nightmare. But I'm curious about the sign-up thing for auditions. So is the idea that everything, like it wasn't appointments, everything was open and you just had to go. No, you signed up for your slot. But you still. You signed up for your slot. It opened up to sign up, opened up at eight o'clock. Everybody was in line to get their slots from like seven. You had to get there at like seven. All the good slots were taken. If you showed up at nine, if, if there were any at all. Well, and if you're equity, right? Because yeah, it was equity. if you're, if you're non-equity, it's even crazier. It's like oh. people try to get slots and it's still happening as of five years ago in Chicago, the same thing. People would show up three hours early, put their name on a list, co- go do something, come back, wait on the staircase of the theater, oh. sitting there just for their general audition for a theater sometimes. For it's not something. even a role. Yes. And here's the thing somebody else, somebody told me is that, pardon me. Those roles are already cast. Yeah. They're yeah. already cast. So not only are you not going to get the fucking job because they took all the people and why shouldn't they with agents and managers, but by law, they have to open up the EPAs. And I thought, no, who's getting cast? No one. No one. And was this, was this mostly for Broadway shows or everything? Everything. Broadway. <laughs> I mean, so they when had to- like second or third cast replacements, and yeah. and and I already knew that they were a joke because the Syracuse stage shows that I that I was that I was in, I saw them. Uh, I saw the EPAs in backstage, and they'd already been cast. Right, and we were already mm-hmm. rehearsing. Wow. Yeah, I mean, it's just so sad, and it so- is sad it takes such advantage of, of, of actors and, it, and it's demoralizing and it's all the things. So how did you end up leaving Manhattan or leaving New York? Were you like, I'm out of here? Oh, wow. Well, that's another story. <laughs> um, I, I, I finally had some freedom. Um, I was in Manhattan loving the meatpacking district and my little hole of an apartment and was able to do the, called in a favor on a friend. And I said, listen, do you have an agent? Can you get me in? Can you do, 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 do? And he was moving toward music, but he said, here, take my old agent. And her name was, she just recently passed. Her name was Toby Gibson from Young Talent Inc. She, I went to visit her. She, she literally had a caftan on. Literally was leaning on her sofa with the caftan and a cigarette holder. And her first thing, now I'm thinking I'm really cute and I'm going for the natural. She's like, you're very plain, darling. You're very, very plain. Wow. And I thought, (laughs) and I I, I snapped at her. I said, no, I'm not. I'm natural. Like it matters. (laughs) I have to start wearing more makeup. And the quality of the auditions got was amazing. But the amount of women that had this hair and that looked like me in varying shades, it was like, oh, this must be the black version of what white girls go through. And it was, it was disheartening. It was a little too late. Um, I did get cast in something. Um, I do remember going to five auditions for a Pizza Hut commercial. Only to see that girl later 
in a in the Woody Allen film, um, the one film where he actually cast a black person. I remember Hazel. I can't even think what that is. Oh, it, it, he wa- it's a horrible movie. He walks around mm-hmm. and she's a prostitute. And I thought, of course she is. Of course, yeah. And yeah. Um, other than that, the it was just a lot of good caliber auditions. And I finally cracked the whole backstage thing. Like I was up, I was doing this. I got this, I did that. I did it all. And after like a year of everything and Toby, I was like, I got to go. I was exhausted. I was exhausted. I was lonely. Um, New York City was awash in police brutality. I was afraid. Um, I'd already been, I'd already run out of, out of a, a black neighborhood. You know, I mean, it was like, where, where, where do I fit? So I did what any, any, any smart person would do. I sold all my possessions, um, tried to shore up some bills, and I moved to the Caribbean. I moved to St. John. Plot twist. I would, did not see that coming. Okay. I did not either. I moved to St. John. I took a preliminary trip because I thought that's what I, because I had taken a vacation and I had gotten to know some local people and I thought, they do nothing all day. Their jobs are nothing. I have been working like a dog. I'm going to the Caribbean. It was as simple as that. And I quickly found out, because I actually researched this and did do it, um, any island that's not the United States, you need to have a round-trip ticket because they don't want anybody dropping out of society in their island. They got enough, and which is exactly what I was going to do. Um, but I ended up going and, and finding that St. John was what I needed to do. Um, I started out living in a tent. Uh, on a t- on a campground, and you could live there for a month, and then uh, you could find another place to live for a week, and then you could go back to the campground for a month. And um, as long as I kept my my clothes uh, free of mildew, I was okay. I mean, I I lived uh, right a few steps from the beach. Uh, there were wild donkeys. There were land. What are they called? Land crabs. Have you ever heard of land crabs? The huge yes. ones. Yeah. Oh, uh-huh. of them. Yeah. And I became friends with the guy who ran the place. Um, well, we, 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 and, and I, I had the most ridiculous blissful time. I worked for a couple of crazy AA members who lived on St. Thomas by the way, St. Thomas is extremely dangerous. Don't go there. And they lived on St. Thomas and they would come by, they would come by the ferry and um, they would open up, they owned a string of, of, of t-shirt shops. And I worked with Caribbean women at the t-shirt shop. And the first day I was like, they're like, girl, what you doing? Sit down. This <laughs> is not going to be here. They took the bus and then he'll go with the dollar man. And the dollar man would take them all around the island. Girl, sit down. What you doing? And then they would steal. <laughs> and you're like, yes, finally, I'm getting a real education. You're like, here, you, you, you're in a gift for family? Take these. And I, I supplied my family with a lot of sweatshirts. And St. John taught me a huge lesson that I thought I was 
escaping and the bigotry, like bigotry never leaves. There was a huge, you had this wonderful island and they called it paradise. Everybody lived like a hippie. I finally found, oh God, another story. I finally found a roommate. Her name was Joycelyn and she's 50 years old. And I said, hi, Joycelyn. What are you doing? She said, oh, I'm having a nervous breakdown here. Would you like to, um, you want to share an apartment? And I'm so naive. I was like, yeah. I was like, yeah, great, Joycelyn. What could be wrong? She looked like a mom. And I said, but wait a minute. She didn't have, she had a teenage daughter. She didn't have custody of her daughter because the father had it. And I said, well, well, Joycelyn, why are you here? She said, well, I was running meth. And one time, you know, I got stopped by the Texas Rangers and they said, ma'am, can we ask you what is in the back of your car? I said, she said, sure, officer, I'm running meth. I got a whole case of meth in the back of my car. And they laughed because she was white and looked simple. And they let her go. But it got a little hot. And that was where (laughs) I learned that um, most of the businesses, a Caribbean island, most of the businesses were white owned. Most of the white people were Southerners. And they bought that particular brand of um, their particular brand of dealing with black people with them. The black people owned nothing. The Caribbean people owned nothing. The police were so corrupt. This is the police thing. I I don't even know if it's changed. You could drive with a beer, open, open beer, drive around the island. And everybody did. But if you didn't have your seatbelt on, they would lock you up. Okay. Sure. Why not? Sure. <laughs> and I was there and I, I sold t-shirts and I, I learned about kids young, a couple years younger than me, dropping out of society. Um, wealthy. Mommy got a new husband, wealthy husband. Husband doesn't like you. I knew this girl. She was from Seattle and her mother gave her a one-way plane ticket to St. John. Uh, there was another woman. Um, and she, I, I heard her crying on the phone, mommy, please, can I come back? And Mm -hmm. her mother was like, no, sweetie, you're having such a good time there. And you know, bad stuff ended up happening to her. There was another woman, um, Reeves. They were all wasps. Reeves who something happened again, had kids, did not have custody of the kids. Don't know what happened. She was a bartender And her thing was she went everywhere barefoot, everywhere. She tended bar barefoot. She went to the bathroom, went into a bathroom barefoot. That was her fuck you to the man. That's like Um, some real white people stuff. It is some real white people. And you were never to say Merry Christmas. And this is amongst the expat community. This wasn't the Caribbean people. This wasn't the the St. Jonians. This was amongst the white people. And again, only one black person. And you never said um, Merry Christmas. You never said Happy Thanksgiving because that's when all their trauma was. And they all had trauma stories about, you know, it's the holidays. You drink too much. Daddy rapes you. I mean, just oh, messed up mm-hmm. stuff. Mm-hmm. That's who I 
hung out with. And I would get, as a final tip, I would get the park rangers. There was one, he was Latino, and then there was another black guy. And they were like, what are you doing here? You obviously, you have a degree, you have sense, you have, what are you doing? And I mean, even by telling them, they were like, go back and be a yuppie. Mm -hmm. I was like, but you don't under, okay. All right. How long were you there? Uh, Only a year. I couldn't handle it. Long enough. That's a long time. Long time in paradise. It occurs to me that you you said about being on the edge and in all of these stories, I mean, you were never in the center, no. right, of, of anything. What about that now? I mean, aside from our shared group that we're a part of, like in the rest of your life, do you feel that you're finally getting to be in the center of something instead of on the edge? Yes and no. Um, I mean, after all of these experiences and in between all of that nonsense, um, I, I had met Jim and had continued dating back and forth. And then when I left, I left and I moved in with him to Westchester and I, it was, which is like another culture shock. I'm just like, why do you keep putting yourself in these, these things? Mm-hmm. And I started to, to teach um, I made up my own program, which is, you know, and, and, and I started to, to market it and to try to teach, um, drama to schools. Um, and, and for a while I was actually an assistant nursery school teacher, which was a blast until, um, a bunch of moms, uh, a lot of whom were Italian did not like the fact that a black woman was an authority figure to their little kids. And so they started, um, what, I guess you'd say microaggression, like Miss Brown Berenson seemed to snap really hard at Connor today. Uh, I'm wondering if you could talk to her about that. And it would just amp up and amp up and amp up. And suddenly when we needed um, chaperones to take the kids somewhere, we had more chaperones than we needed and they were all watching me the pressure was immense and I ended up leaving there because I thought, please, you're not paying me enough to take this racism. And I was living with Jim and I will say this, I was very lucky not to have to worry about money. That's Mm -hmm. key. Um, And we, I mean, everything happened in, 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 in quick succession, buying a house, finding out you have infertility issues, getting married, fixing up the house. Oh, and you have infertility issues and infertility issues and it takes like years for you to have a baby and fixing up your house and being put in South Salem, which at the time was very much a live and let live type of community. Um, I did not feel I must have stuck out, but I think because of my color and my hair, people are like, eh, who knows what she is and didn't care. And I was literally able to live peacefully, have a child, raise my child in like a very 1950s mode. I mean, I won't lie. It, the way yeah. being a stay at home mom in, in South Salem is kind of like being a stay at home mom in Ridgefield. It, yes, and in, in 1950. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> you know, mommy and me, and there was a whole group of women. And was I entirely comfortable? No, because I got a little bit of anxiety 
Um, and that's my own thing that I was working on. But also, I'd never been in a group where it was okay to just be me. It was, I was Dawn the mom. And it was, it was a role that I could hide in. And I could heal. I could heal from the business. And I could grow internally. And what I will say is one of the best things that the universe has ever done for me is to not have my career furthered during the, during my twenties, that would have been, I'd be dead. I would be dead because there is so much shaming of women. If there was some type of, of pill or something, cause I would, I mean, you saw the shit I was willing to do. It was all about the business. So if there was a pill that could make me thinner I mean, that was the, you know, the time where, you know, size two is supposedly normal. I mean, it's all changed now, but I was, I mean, I was too huge. I was only going to be able to get stage work. I was certainly too big for um, TV and I couldn't handle it because I had my own personal issues to deal with. So the best thing that happened to me was not having a career because I would have probably hurt myself. Yeah. Because of, of what the business wanted you to do. And I was not strong enough. Certainly not strong enough to counteract that. Um, yeah. And I think Boz and I both have essentially the same. I mean, for not for the same reasons, but we had the same gratitude that we didn't kind of keep going full board at the time because we wouldn't have been able to handle it if we had gotten success. Oh, Yeah. 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 When you hear about what people have done and, and one of the things I noticed because I was going through um, infertility for a long time and operations and stuff is how many, how many women that quote unquote made it suddenly couldn't have kids because they, their, 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 their whole thirties, their breeding time was eaten up with auditions and this and that and, 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 and whatever it is the business calls for whatever level. Yeah. It was a lot of um, like restricting and also treating their bodies really, really, really harshly. Um, and then their bodies like, Nope, you want yeah. a kid? Nope. Mm-hmm. Cause what, what, why would we participate in this? You know? Yeah. But mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. I am the trauma. Holy. Yeah, the trauma and just the, the way, and I mean, everybody probably could know the way that racism affects your ability to get cast, but what you're describing is just the whole life, just, just to be able to have a life living in a place where you'd have access to auditions was completely prohibitive. Yeah. Absolutely. And yeah, I, I think people don't necessarily realize that about it is the way so, in which it's everywhere. It, it's it, it it's horrible. And I don't know if it's if it if it opens up. I mean, now we have so many streaming services. There are so many opportunities for more people, but there there seems to be just as much dysfunction. Oh, it's still garbagey. Still garbage. And it, it amazes me that anything ever gets done or anything ever gets produced. I, I can't imagine how, how it happens. There's just so much trash going on. And finally, thank God women are speaking up. It took a long time, a long time. Seriously, a very long time. 
Well, we're going to have to end, but before we do, I want to say we, the three of us need to write a movie about this Toby, <laughs> Kaftan Toby with, is that her name? Yes. Toby Gilder. Young talent. I mean, well, I also love the, the woman having an, I'm having a nervous breakdown. Joycelyn. 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 Suburban mother turned meth runner. Turned drug Actually, That's like runner. brilliant. Actually, you need to write a book. I mean, yeah. honestly, you just yeah. need to write a book because you've got such an amazing breadth of experience and yep. it's all, it's all valuable, acting. but acting in other ways. And also, yeah. also such a rich life filled with, but I don't know, rich is the word, but I, I think a book is in order and should be called welcome to paradise. That's what I think. <laughs> it should be called. So people can find you at dawnvanessabrown.com, right? Uh, www.dawnvanessabrown.com That's me. All right. Thanks so much, If you liked what you heard today, please subscribe, give us a five-star rating, and write a great review. I Survive Theater School is an Undeniable Inc. production. Jen Bosworth-Ramirez and Gina Polici are the co-hosts. This episode was produced, edited, and sound mixed by Gina Polici. For more information about us, you can go to our website at undeniablewriters.com. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thanks!